Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Techno Roll, a special Let It Roll maxi series on the history of DJs, disco, and electronic dance music, hosted by Nate Wilcox and Ryan Harkness. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast, and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast. And you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com. Nate uses AKG microphones and headphones. Today, Nate and Ryan continue their discussion of Last Night a DJ Saved My Life, The History of the Disc Jockey by Bill Brewster and Frank Broughton with a look at the high-water mark of disco, Studio 54, Saturday Night Fever, The Bee Gees, and The Backlash. Email us at letitrollpodcast at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll, or should I say techno roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and Ryan Harkness is returning to help me walk through this tome, a classic, Last Night a DJ Saved My Life, The History of the Disc Jockey by Bill Brewster and Frank Broughton, and we've battled our way all the way up to disco, the not not disco roots, not the underground glory days. We're talking full on Saturday Night Fever, Studio 54, overkill, overkill, overkill. But in the meantime, we're going to have some great music to talk about and listen to as we go. Ryan, thoughts on the big picture of disco? Well, I mean, you were just talking about Disco Roots, which was last week's episode, and that was a real pleasure. That was a lot of fun. There was a lot to discover, a lot to learn, a lot of great music to dig into, and uh, this one, not so much. Uh, a lot of tropes, a lot of stereotypical, over overused and overplayed, played out elements. Even even the good original stuff is basically being kind of perverted by what came afterwards. So it was, uh, you know, a bit of a lull in my in my mind. This is uh, to me, this is my least favorite chapter so far. I can I can see that. But I really enjoyed actually going back and listening to some of the classic MFSB and Gloria Gaynor and Eddie Kendricks and and, you know, so much of the other stuff. And if, if you can put fresh ears on it, which is very difficult to do. But there's a lot of playlists that mix in the overplayed stuff, the I Will Survives, and et cetera, with stuff that maybe hasn't been overplayed quite as badly. 
And I don't know, for a minute there, I was I was reliving the glory days of Studio 54, which I'm still bitter I missed. So <laughs> maybe jealousy is an element of it. But there's two quotes that open the chapter that I think are key to telling us what we're dealing with here. And the first is from Albert Goldman, who's much hated by rockists, but he is a bard of disco, his, his book – classic 1978 book disco well i wouldn't know it was a classic because i can't find it anywhere i'm not going to pay 300 dollars for a copy but here's a quote he says disco is a four billion dollar a year industry with its own keenly competitive market agents who are aiming to make every finished basement and rumpus room in america into a mini disco so trouble already and then the second quote is from a musical great who's contemporary with disco but was not of disco, and that's George Clinton, the, the king of Parliament Funkadelic. And he said, they, meaning the music biz, I guess, they narrowed it down to one beat to try to corner the market on a particular music. And when you do that with music, talk about something that would get on your nerve. Try to make love with just one stroke. So that kind of says it all. The era we're talking about is when this magical inviting uplifting music that had been brewing in the lofts and and gay clubs of new york city amongst the black folks and the latins and, and african americans the there were wealthy people and celebrities involved but it was largely a scene created by the energetic underclass as as uh, the authors call it but now the upper class gets their hands on it and it goes big, 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 big. And, 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 and as they introduced in the chapter, you know, last, last time we were talking about the roots of disco and there wasn't really a musical style. If it was danceable, somebody like David Mancuso uh, or Francis Grasso might play it. If, you know, it could be rock, it could be Latin, it could be African music, it could be soul. Has a lot of soul was being played. But this is the period when the suits figured out A, this is making money, and B, there's a formula to it, and we can replicate it. And boy, did they! And so there's they they have a quote that distinguishes this that this is the disco that compels drunken students to don Afro wigs and platform shoes. That's the legacy of a short period of 1976-1979 when some of the music crossed over into super profitable commerciality. And it's just a classic tale. I mean, I lived through the grunge boom. Anybody who's been part of a scene that's bumbling un bubbling under for a long time and it's exciting and it's fun when new people start coming to the shows and it's more and more popular, more and more popular. And then one day it crosses over and you go to your favorite club and it's full of all the jocks and frat boys that have been beating your ass since middle school and you're not welcome there anymore. So this is possibly the biggest case in modern pop culture history of that phenomenon. Yeah, and it, it's very, very clearly motivated by the urge to to make a buck. Like the the music industry jumped into it, didn't really understand it, but then through a couple of of, of key people that we'll mention later, uh, kind of rolling out a, a format to remix. They, they realized, yeah, that there was a formula, that there's a recipe, and they took that recipe and they just beat it until it was dead. And uh, I think that was uh, the, the biggest problem is that it just got so formulaic and you could take any track and you could put that formulaic disco vibe over it. You could give it that disco remix. So they, they immediately took the remix, which to me is like one of the, the greatest, one of the greatest tools that has become available to musicians and they, they perverted it and used it for evil. Typical music business. Yeah, absolutely. And and to put it in historical perspective, and I've talked about this in my rock and roll histories, is that 
the music business we know now, the big business of music really was birthed with the Beatles and the Rolling Stones uh, and Jimi Hendrix and, and Janis Joplin and other mega selling artists in the 60s. And there was this enormous boom as the baby boomers get old enough to buy their own records. And, you know, they go from buying singles to buying albums to buying double albums and prices just go up with inflation and, and there's this huge population of young people that want to buy records but by the mid 70s that was kind of sputtering out and that the way our authors brewster and broughton frame it is you know the record labels tried pushing reggae they tried pushing punk it's very much like the way they tried pushing bossa nova um in the 50s when they were trying to get rid of rock and roll or um Calypso was another one that was a totally manufactured uh, trend that just didn't catch. And so, you know, you can say what you want about reggae, and and I'm a big fan of both reggae and punk, and there are various reasons why it didn't click initially when the record companies tried to market it. I think a lot of it has to do with how bad big corporations are at marketing new things, but they seized on disco. And I think the one thing that, you know, you have to hand it is that, and the authors, this I'm going to quote again, that because disco appealed instinctively to nearly everyone, to this day, no music has better disco for its ability to entice, entice the broadest cross-section of people onto a dance floor. So they had this super appealing formula. This wasn't, you know, Rastafarian rebels smoking ganja and talking about overthrowing governments. This was not John Lydon's, you know, Johnny Rotten spitting in people's faces and, and being spit on in return. This was, this was appealing. I mean, Anybody who heard it could get it. The, the vibe that David Mancuso created at the loft of welcoming and friendship and ecstatic dancing, it turns out that's something everybody dug. And for a brief time, it was it just exploded. And you know, the the, the, the music biz had Peter Frampton. That was the one thing that really clicked in this period. But they quickly uh, turned their attention to disco and. Wow. <laughs> By 1979, there's too much disco. And the vibe of it, I mean, the, the, the three words they keep throwing out there are decadence, cocaine, and sex. So it changed from being about love and inclusion and dancing and, and getting away from your troubles and exploring these new freedoms. And it curdled into this very self-absorbed, showing out, displaying wealth, showing off how much access you had uh, and that you could get in the exclusive club and snort that cocaine and have that promiscuous sex and it and it it had an, an ugliness to it but like ryan mentioned there's several major innovations that come out of this era that did stick the first and foremost you've got the 12 inch single which was invented and they and they and they note that this is until the mp3 becomes commercially available at the turn of the millennium this was the only musical format that was marketed purely out of consumer demand. This was not something the record companies cooked up in their labs. This was something that was created by serendipity. And we'll talk about that. Um, And then brought into the marketplace strictly because people wanted to buy it. And then like Ryan mentioned, there's the remix. This is the first time DJs are allowed into the studio with the master tracks. So they're not just re-editing the records that they've got. They're not just cutting two two copies of one record so they can extend the drum break or expen- extend the build out or, or let the groove run out a little longer. They're given the keys to the kingdom and they can bring up the bass. They can drop out all the instruments. They can layer more drums in there and really, really tear it up. And people like Walter Gibbons are going to go wild with that. It's also on club-based record promotion comes in record companies figure out 
when these records are coming, you know, six month old records, 18 month old records are suddenly selling 10,000 copies, 20,000 copies in New York. They know they've got something, they've got to deal with it. And so it was a challenge for them to deal with promoting records to club DJs rather than radio DJs. They also say there's a new approach to making records. And the first time the DJ is recognized as the expert on making people dance and thus given the keys to the recording studio, like I mentioned. So you got to admit, Ryan, that's quite a few positives to come out of an otherwise dark era. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Te- technology wise, it was great. Right at the end of, of the disco era, you got the the uh, the Technics SL uh, 1200s Mark IIs that come out, which are the first, uh, which is the first turntable with the actual pitch controller on the side, the proper pitch controller and not just like a little knob or something like that, that uh, that a lot of people were, were, were still doing managing to do impressive things with. So th- this was right on the cusp of, you know, just, a, you know, just as everything gets darkest is when light starts to reappear. So uh, technology wise, it was, it was a good era because I guess there was a lot of money coming into it. So, you know, sometimes that evil has to happen. Indeed. And let's go ahead and hear a record that's commonly considered the first true, absolutely undeniable disco record. This is Eddie Kendricks produced by Frank Wilson at Motown. Girl, you need to change your mind. Eddie Kendricks, formerly one of the lead singers of The Temptations, doing Girl, You Need a Change of Mind, produced by Frank Wilson. And this was not intended to be a dance floor killer. They were trying to get a live feel. And Frank Wilson was drawing on his experience in the black church uh, when he created the big dropout break. And that's when the, you know, the instruments drop out and they come back in. And there's also this big change. The song starts out with what they called Four on the Top, which is the famous Motown one, two, three, four on the snare that you know drummers like Benny Benjamin brought uh, to great fame and success all through the 60s and early 70s. But then in that breakdown, they switched to four on the floor, which is that bass drum going boom, 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 boom. And and it was a big change. And they, Frank Wilson and Eddie Kendricks had no idea. Really, I don't even know if Frank Wilson knew that the club scene in New York was happening at all when he put this record out. But but they quickly realized it was catching on in the clubs and they were marketing there. And, and there's a big competitor Motown that rises up in this period. And we talked about them a little bit uh, last time. And this is uh, Philly International, uh, Gamble and Huff, uh, the great production team working out of Sig- Sigma Studios in Philadelphia uh, with artists like MFSB and Harold Melvin and the Blue Notes and Teddy Pendergrass and the OJs that are adding a lot of strings and modernizing the Motown sound for the 70s. And they are also absolutely a hotbed. And like I said last week, a lot of musical histories of disco that looked at it from the musician's perspective before this book came along and centered it, I think, correctly on the DJ would start with Philly International and the stuff they were cutting. So it's this fascinating synergy between what's being made in the record studios, frequently by people who are not in the scene they don't know what's happening on the ground and that's where the dj comes in to fill his role of the modern day shaman or band leader who's watching the dance floor and and knows what what the people are dancing to 
And it's interesting that you're seeing like that last song, you only get a small snippet of it here, but it's, it's a good eight minutes long. And if you're, you're going through the music uh, alongside us with the book, you're, you're all of a sudden you're hitting this era where, where you're getting 12 minute, 15 minute tracks. We're going to be getting more into the, all of the remixes that come out. And the, one of the th interesting things that I noticed is uh, the, the original versions are practically unavailable anymore. If you go and you try to find, uh, the original three minute versions of songs before they, they got basically taken, stripped down and built back up with much more bongo and much more of that Philly string sound, that orchestral sound that I think everybody, everybody's definition of that overused, oversold disco sound is that is, is the Philly orchestral sweep, the violins, everything else like that before all of that got added in. It was uh, th those are pretty much gone. Uh, they're not they're, the, the remixes aren't even mentioned as remixes on official sources like Spotify. You have to go and dig deeper and look for the originals that have basically been just just completely taken out of circulation. Yeah, and it's interesting that they have a quote from one of the record producers who was working at that time, and and he felt that his original short version was the artistically superior um, version, and and this is Norman Harris that they're quoting in the book, and he's talking about Leoletta's Holloway's Hit and Run, and he felt that the correct artistically superior version was the three-minute-something version that they cooked up in the studio, but he recognized that Walter Gibbons, who's one of these early remix kings, did the version that clicked with the marketplace. And I imagine if Norman had spent more time in the clubs, he would have seen what Walter Gibbons was seeing and the way these breakdowns, they still make people go crazy on the dance floor. It, it might be your granny at a wedding, but it, the shit still works. I mean, th this was a very, very successful commercial formula for a reason. And, um, you know, if you've managed to keep it out of your head to the point where it makes you sick, I think there's still quite a bit of fun to be had. But one of the things that goes on in this period, and it starts at a club called Le Jardin, and correct my terrible French pronunciation at any point, Ryan. Um, but this was a club, this was the first society disco and this uh, john addison who was a south african he modeled uh le jardin on a gay club called the 10th floor that just had a real upscale elegance uh, even for a limited clientele they 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 take it to midtown and open it up to the public and it's a formula that really really worked and it was also a club it was the club where the record companies first realized that DJs like Bobby Gutadaro could break records, like Gloria Gaynor's Never Can Say Goodbye, Do It Till You're Satisfied by the BT Express, Mano de Bongo's Soul Mikasa, and, and especially the love theme by the Love Unlimited Orchestra, uh, famously produced and written by Barry White, who, be if anybody becomes the icon of the disco era, it's probably Barry White. Although I can remember reading in Rolling Stone that he wasn't the Elvis of the era because he was so overweight that that his records come out and you hear this sexy voice and it's the perfection of the disco sound and women are just going crazy. Then when he finally appears on Soul Train, it's like, oh, this guy's big <laughs> so it's just it, not what they're they're used to being able to sell and that was one of the reasons one of the big reasons why the record labels never really liked disco to begin with is because they were used to having a band or uh, a front man or something that they could package and sell they didn't 
you know, it, it took a while for the music to stand on its own as something that was to be sold as music. They saw more of as a product where you take an Elvis and you sell people Elvis and then people are Elvis fans who listen to Elvis music. So now you've got Barry White as a faceless faceless producing uh, part of, of, the, of the mechanisms that is being pumped out for, for dance floors. And these labels don't have something that they can package up and send on tour or yeah. put, a, put a face on. Or sell t-shirts or calendars and, and all the other crap that goes along with it. And, and there was a promo man for 20th Century, Billy Smith, who dug up that record. You know, This was a record that had, had been released, done nothing, died. He got it to the right DJs, in this case, Bobby Gutadero at Lee Jardine, and boom, it sells 10,000 copies in just a few weeks, and the record companies immediately figure it out. And, you know... I think we should defer to David Mancuso. If anybody knows, he, he considers this era to be one of the peaks because, you know, songs like Rock the Boat by the Used Corporation, Kung Fu Fighting, Rock Your Baby by George McRae, Pick Up the Pieces by Average White Band, even something like Ease on Down the Road can become a big hit. And Mancuso felt that that was the apex of the style. And, and one of the reasons he felt it was so successful was uh, the DJ record pools. And let's hear a little bit of music and, and talk about that when we come back. But let's hear Gloria Gaynor's, um, let's see, I'm blanking on it. Never Can Say Goodbye, forgive me for that. Gloria Gaynor, Never Can Say Goodbye. Gloria Gaynor's Never Can Say Goodbye. And that was a track that Tom Moulton, who's not a DJ, but he's a big part of the story because he's one of the first remixers. He was a guy who's a model who got into the disco scene on Fire Island, the she-she, gay, heavily gay, you know, the wealthy gay neighborhood on Fire Island or Vacation Resort. Uh, Had some great discos. He discovered the scene there. And he got frustrated with songs ending in three minutes when he felt like the crowd was really just starting to get into it. And he got obsessed with it and started making a study of what keeps people on the dance floor and what drives people off. And he started experimenting with with reel-to-reel tapes at home. And this is what they call a re-edit rather than a remix. It's what a DJ does when he cuts up records. But Moulton got the keys to the kingdom and got access to start remixing records you know, in the studio, full access to the master tapes. And Gloria Gaynor's album was one of the first ones. And he worked with him on on turning several songs on one side of that album into a suite so that it's a 15 or 20 minute um, dance run. And this is, uh, this is big doings. I mean, I, I absolutely, you know, yeah, it's been overplayed and people have overheard it, but I think Tom Bolton is somebody who deserves a shout out and some recognition. And across the board, the book makes it clear that all of the artists hated this happening. And this was a big reason why I think, you know, before this point, remix culture was limited to, uh, you know, there was a little bit of a mention in the reggae uh, dub scene because it was a similar situation or, or a situation where you had a producer and he was hiring session musicians to make this music. And then he had 
basically because the the the, the musicians weren't uh, involved or or they weren't making original creations. They weren't there to stick a uh, to, to kind of stop the producers from doing what they wanted with it. So they had free reign to to remix it and change it and do whatever they wanted. And this is the first time that you kind of have the remixer coming in and remixing these artists and the artist hating it, but uh, the business the business needs end up taking over and uh, stepping in front of those uh, those artistic sensibilities for for the betterment of the numbers anyways and for the betterment of the dance floor so yeah and 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 this is an interesting battle that's been going on actually since the late 50s early 60s or or since the mid 60s when this this kind of assembly line process was the way Americans developed record making at the towards the end of the rock and roll era people like phil Spector and barry gordy at motown perfected this style of the producers in charge they pick the song they work with the songwriters sometimes they are the songwriters they hire the session musicians they cut the track they bring in the singer at the last minute present them with the song you know cut the final version and this competed with the model that Bob Dylan and the Beatles pushed, which are not cautiously pushed, but just practiced of we write the songs, we play the instruments, we have the vision, the artist, the singer songwriter is in control. And that's the version that the public really fell in love with. And that's why you see groups like the monkeys have this you know, fall victim to this huge backlash against plat- you know, classic music, session musicians. This is artificial. This is fake. And, Looking back now, it seems to me kind of a silly distinction, but at the time it was just life and death. And so you've got artists like Gloria Gaynor or the BT Express that they want to they want to be their Beatles too. They want to be in control. They want to be in charge. And yet, you know, these records are what's getting them on the charts. When Tom Moulton remixes, that's what makes the hit. And so, like, you know, he tells the story of BT Express getting a hit off his version of Do It Till You're Satisfied, which they hated. And then when they go on Soul Train, they act like they wrote it that way and totally deny him credit. So he's just screaming at the TV in fury. And, and it's it's an uncomfortable alliance. And I think that a lot of these elements and undercurrents, the backlash to disco is so much more than a backlash than a racist backlash or a homophobic backlash. Now, those are absolutely big pieces of the puzzle, but it's also a backlash against this sort of factory system, this this artificial um, computerized music. And music hadn't even begun to get computerized yet. Towards the end of this episode, we'll talk about one of the first instances, but, you know, from 2021, looking back at, at Gamble and Huff in the Sig- Sigma studio with MMF, MFSB cutting records with a live band and a live orchestra, it seems really old school and classic now. But at the time, it was seen as some kind of new threatening thing. And, and so I think a lot of the reaction against disco was against these changes and against this anonymity like the stuff seemed faceless and people couldn't connect with the artists and when and when they did have artists like the village people that were put forward they were clearly fronts and so even if the records and i do think personally i love the village people uh i had a punk band that used to cover their song sleazy and it just is kicking but um they weren't the auteurs and so when when you watch the village people on tv it was clear that this was an act and 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 it didn't have that same feeling of commitment that somebody like otis redding had brought uh so palpably uh, to the to the work at the time yeah and i think there's just something you know you can't deny when a certain sound is being played out 
and in this chapter they they feature you know the cream of the crop the the uh, the innovators the original ones it's kind of like uh, complaining that lord of the rings is tired because it uses all those stereotypical fantasy tropes when it invented those tropes Lord of the Rings originated. They're 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 the gold standard. They're the best, but it's still tired because everybody after that uses elves and orcs and everything else like that. It's the same deal. It's like uh, moving forward, jumping forward into dubstep. Sure, Skrillex created that, and his original songs were uh, very impressive and unique at the time. But that sound is undeniably played out now, and you can't do that dubstep fart anymore without everybody just saying, ah, you know. We're done with that. We're just done because they just took it, took specific elements, that Philly sound, and uh, and they just ran it into the ground. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I promised we would talk about the DJ record pools uh, in this segment, and, and let's get to that. And, and, and what the deal was, was they knew that records were b- breaking in clubs. They knew that the DJs were the key to the audience, but they didn't know – who was a DJ at what club? Like they had lots of people coming in and saying, Hey, I'm the DJ at this club. I'm the DJ at that club. Give me free records. And you know, if you're doing promo, that's a business expense and you don't want to just give out endless free records or you're one of these mafia bust out companies of which Morris Levy's roulette records was a big player in the disco scene at the time. Um, But so they, they, had this infamous incident where they they denied Steve D'Aquisto that we talked about last time, one of the three apostles of Francis Grasso. Uh, they denied him a copy of a record and uh, when he was DJing at Lee Jardin, and it becomes this cause celeb, and they have this big meeting between some record company execs and a bunch of the top DJs. turns into a screaming match, and while they're there, David Mancuso and D'Aquisto and a guy named Eddie Rivera, Riviera say, hey, let's form a pool, a, a record pool that – organizes the DJs so the record companies don't have to deal with all of us that, 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 you know, we can organize the DJs and present a united front to the record companies. And that takes over. And there's a lot of conflict. I mean, Riviera splits off in a few minutes, in a few weeks or whatever, or months after they form it, but it becomes the dominant format. By 1978, there's 150 of these things in a national organization. So the record companies and the DJs figure out how to do business together. And that's a big step forward for the music biz. But let's take a second and hear from our sponsor, and we'll keep talking about the fall of disco when we come back. And before we get to the fall of disco, let's talk a little bit about one of the key inventions of the period, which is the 12-inch single. And this was a form when I was a kid I did not understand. It was always more expensive. Sometimes there would be a B-side or something that you didn't have on the regular album, but I was always – it just seemed like – ephemery to me or some kind of piffle and i was just focused on collecting those albums i i I didn't collect singles and i didn't know what to do with 12 inch singles and it wasn't until i heard i think it was pil and i heard some of the stuff off their second edition or metal box album on a 12 inch and it was like booming out of the speakers and i was like why is this so much louder than my copy and the guy explained to me kid it's science (laughs) it's a record you see these grooves they're bigger the bigger they are the fatter the bass is going to sound when you take a lot of sound and compress it onto onto a vinyl album the sound quality goes down and that was a huge revelation for me and it turns out it was a big revelation for these djs at the time and the only reason it happened is because tom bolton 
went to his master and engineer, Jose Rodriguez, to print up another one of his remixes, and they were out of seven inch plates. So they say, "Hey, let's do it on twelve inch." And and he groans, and, and you know, thinking that he's going to have this stupid twelve inch record that only has seven inches of music on it. And the guy says, "No, no, let's stretch it out, and make it louder." And once he hears that, it starts being something that they pass out to DJs. And then by spring of 75, Dance, Dance, Dance by Calhoun is released commercially on 12-inch singles, but it's seen as a gimmick until uh, Double Exposure's version of 10% on Soul Soul Records is remixed by DJ Walter Gibbons and becomes a hit. And this is the moment they realize that the original single is not the work, that it's the remix that is the work of record. And like you say, that's what you can find on Spotify and other places. It's, it's overwritten the original work of the artist. And it's funny that the 12 inch kind of uh, was fought by by record labels because obviously they have a financial incentive to keep the cost low and the 12 inch is more expensive. Uh, it was it was the DJs that kept the format alive through the through the early portions of it and really, really advocated for it and fought for it and were pressing things themselves on it. So uh, as Nate said earlier, this is this is the first one that, that the people demanded rather than the uh, the recording industries kind of just gave out pushed out themselves yeah absolutely and and um i do want to go back we kind of jumped around from the order i had outlined but i want to go back and talk about the the philly sound a little bit more because the band you got ronnie baker on bass you got norman harris on guitar and you got earl young on drums and they are more than just the house band for philly international they are also working for soul soul records uh you know, first choice, the tramps, double exposure. It's not just three degrees and Teddy Pendergrass and the OJs and Hell Melvin and the Blue Notes, which is quite a bit. But you know, as as one of the, I think it was Tom Moulton, they quote saying, you know, if those guys had had put all their work on one label and been credited for that, people would be like the Funk Brothers. Who this is the greatest session band of all time. So I want I want to give MFSB, who officially that stands for mother, father, sister, brother. But the word is that it was actually for motherfucking son of a bitch was, was the actual source of the acronym. And I, th- I think they absolutely earned it. And they recorded at Sigma Sound Studios where Joe Tarsia was the owner and engineer. And it's just one of the classic American regional scenes like Cosmo Matasso in New Orleans in the 50s and 60s where you've got just – or Sam Phillips in Memphis in the 50s where you've just got this freak dork – technical guy who loves sound and figures out how to make the sound of the moment. And it's not just people playing with MMSB. You know, when David Bowie decides to go funk, boom, that's where he goes. Uh, When the French producers who are making the Village People and the Ritchie family want to do disco, boom, that's where they go. And that kind of brings us to our next thing, which is Euro disco. And this is the second wave of the sound. Like the the Philly sound has its run. And then as the stuff becomes more and more commercial and global, this is is one of the first – uh, American phenomenons that really hits continental Europe at the same time as it hits the States in England. And a bunch of French producers sort of s- seize the baton and start making records um, by people like the Village People and the Ritchie Sound. And this is the stuff that really gets knocked. Um, yeah, and it's interesting because it's sim- it's kind of similar to the Northern Soul chapter where you have uh, a number of the different uh, key producers groaning and moaning about certain deviances from, and this is where, uh, yeah, Euro Euro disco comes in and everybody kind of groans about it. But to me, that was uh, 
this is where you start seeing the seeds of some more interesting things. It's uh, they're they're kind of they're escaping from that black hole of uh, of record industry hit making uh, formulas and starting to do other weird stuff. Which on you know I will not deny that it's cheesier and weirder, but that's kind of actually what I liked about it. Yeah, it's it's funny. They've got a quote from Nelson George. He's absolutely one of the great music writers. I would kill to have him uh, to get to interview him. But he, I think, was writing for Village Voice at the time, and, and he slammed uh, Donna Summer's "I Feel Love," which is one of the first times that Giorgio Moroder. I think it was her second record with Moroder, and it was it was all synths, all drum machines. It was very influenced by Kraftwerk, but Nelson George called it, you know, apparently this is music for people with no sense of rhythm. <laughs> and and it is in a way because it's so locked on and it, nobody can miss that beat, but the next generation of artists, whether it's Frankie Knuckles, the you know one of the inventors of Chicago House, or the the Bellevue Three in Detroit that invent techno, or um, Marley Ball, who's one of the great, probably the originator of the golden age sound of hip hop. This was the record, one of the records, this and Kraftwerk's Autobahn that they pointed to as this is where it starts for us. So for a whole new generation of 80s African-American producers, this is Elvis. This is Heartbreak Hotel. You know, when you hear these stories of George Harrison riding his bike down the street and hearing Heartbreak Hotel down a window, next out a window and, and having his life change. Imagine a young Marley Marl hearing I feel love for the first time and having the light bulb go over his head. So, yeah, we've got to give our props. And we've kind of gotten out of order again i should have talked about studio 54 next and this in april 26 1977 two guys who'd been running a, a disco in queens the enchanted garden and it was all the way out at the end of the subway line so that's that tells you these guys were or yokels to some extent they come in to midtown and open up the disco of disco studio 54 and we'll talk about the decadence but let's hear one more song i gotta queue up let's let's go ahead and hear mfsb doing love is the message remixed by tom bolton and, and many people think this is the definitive high disco song MFSB's Love is the Message as remixed by Tom Bolton. And that's the kind of stuff you would have heard um, at Studio 54. If you could hear anything over the sound of the Coke spoons and, and the celebrity gossip and, and it really – And is if the, you can get in at all. Exactly. And they, and they describe it. They've got another um, great bit of prose where they describe it as – by cultivating the highest level of glamour, mystique, and expectancy of any club before or since, Studio 54 made the most famous people in the world completely comfortable with getting fucked up in public. <laughs> and they said this debauched, debauched, the debauched democracy inside depended on fascism at the door. So they had these goons at the door with the velvet rope line. And this is something that you know clubs in L.A. had been doing for a while, and they would – make these evaluations, you know, are you sexy enough? Are you pretty enough? Are you somebody famous? And it's to the point of ridiculousness where 
you know, Bernard Edwards and Nile Rogers of Chic, who are cutting the records that are playing, can't get in. And they write a song they initially call Fuck Off, but change it into Le Freak, and with the famous Freak Out chorus, that's one of the classic hits. So it, it's, it, you know, again, this this friction has a creative byproduct. And Chic is one of the groups that I, I will never abandon. They, Chic will never be played out in my book. I love Chic, and it's a real tragedy that that's the kind of artist that got crushed in the backlash to disco. Like Sheik goes from selling platinum albums to one day in 1981, they can't sell shit. And they, Nile Rogers and Bernard Edwards have to then go underground as producers. And the same thing happens with Barry Gibb with the BJ, Bee Gees, which we talked about on the show before, you know, the Bee Gees get so big on the heels of Saturday night fever, which comes out around this time. And, Suddenly there's a backlash and they can't play anymore. But we need to tell about Saturday Night Fever as well. You know, as Studio 54 is blowing up, as people like Woody Allen and Truman Capote and Andy Warhol and Bianca Jagger and, and um, Margaret Trudeau, the wife of the pr- Canadian prime minister, she's photographed, you know, an upskirt. She's not wearing panties and is visibly just flashing it all over the club. This is the kind of thing that's in the papers. Like they talk about, I think it was Lee Jardine when they had the opening and Diana Ross showed up and that got it in the papers. And so by this time, Studio 54, the studio, the, not studio, the society reporters, which was still a thing in the 70s, the people who report on the antics of the upper classes are spending all their time at Studio 54 because that's where everybody was seen and being seen. So it's this big deal. Around this Disco time, basically it, becoming the soundtrack to this this very high society scene. Yes, a, a decadent, sexualized, cocaine, money uh, appearances, and this guy Nick Cohn, who's uh, one of the first English rock writers who, who wrote some great books in the '60s, a Wapalop, a Wapalop, Bum Boom, whatever Little Richard's thing is. I'm totally butchering that, but he comes out and writes a story that's purporting to be a tale of a suburban Italian kid who's a disco king. It's actually based on his experiences with mods and rockers in England in the 60s. It's it's fascinating work, but it's something that you would get busted for today. It's the kind of thing that would absolutely destroy a career today if you were caught fabricating a story and making up names and claiming you were telling the story of, of real people in a real place and time. And you're actually retelling the story of people at another place and another time. You know, totally bad journalistic practice, but it writes this article. It becomes inspiration for a movie. Um, Robert Stigwood, the the manager of the Bee Gees and owner of RSO Records, signs a deal to make the movie. He's later going to make Grease as well, another disco-connected uh, pop song movie. And the Bee Gees sort of bottle lightning. They've they're I think they've done two R and B influenced albums at this point. They'd their run as a sort of second second tier Beatles doing light psychedelic pop was over by the early 70s and they recreated themselves at the suggestion of producer Arif Martin and went down to Miami and got a, a new studio band that and they really were cooking I think you have to, to take your hats off to the Bee Gees that they earned their spot in disco they were played in the clubs and it's just one of those things where they're so successful that album soundtrack sold 30 million copies it's by far the biggest album of all time before Thriller 
and at one point, you know, they had something like five out of the top 20 songs or more songs from that soundtrack. Three or four of those were BG songs. Plus, they had another song or two by their younger brother, Andy Gibb, and other people that they were producing. So, that you know, I think at one point, the Bee Gees were responsible for something like 14 of the top 20. And this is also the time when radio station WKTU in New York goes turns disco and goes from last to first. So... You know, the business has figured this out. The stampede is all in. The marketing machine is nonstop. You only have three networks in the U.S. at this point. Cable TV is barely happening. And I remember as a kid, you could not get away from disco. Like it went from something you'd never heard of before to suddenly it was the only thing on the radio. And that's another big element. It's again, the homophobia and the racism were a big part of it. But another big part of it was just relentless, relentless, merciless overexposure. Definitely. And, uh, I think a, a big part of why everything crashed so hard as well was because the record labels were never really into it. Uh, they, they, they were doing it for a quick buck so that when, the, as soon as the opportunity came to jump off that ship and just uh, that sinking ship, they just took it. Yeah. And, and this is something that, you know, I've talked about um, previously on the show about the, what happened to alternative music after Kurt Cobain killed himself and they decided that the formula was to clone Nirvana uh, after a period of wild experimentation when all kinds of things were breaking big and the record companies didn't know what was happening. Disco was another situation where the record companies didn't know what was happening. Then they decide they do know what's happening. They boil it down to this simplistic formula and everybody starts cranking out uh, crappy disco songs. I mean, and and they're not all crappy. I mean, I think Rod Stewart and the Rolling Stones did disco pretty well. Um, I think Dolly, some of Dolly Parton's disco is pretty okay. Some of it's terrible. Kenny Rogers getting near disco is a bad idea. Andy Williams and Frank Sinatra get anywhere near disco is just absolutely abysmal. And then you've got novelty songs like Disco Duck coming out of Memphis that's funny and ha-ha, but it's musical garbage. And I found a real gem. I'd never heard this before, but Ethel Merman put out a whole disco album. And let's hear the atrocity, the beautiful atrocity that is Ethel Merman's disco version of Irving Berlin's There's No Business Like Show Business. And that is Ethel Merman. If she's not personally killing disco, she's one of many in the crowd with baseball bats beating it while it's down. Just a total curb stomping on the on the form. I can only imagine what Gamble and Huff thought uh, if they ever heard that. <laughs> I mean, I kind of love it, but I'm a fan of atrocious music like this. And I'm also a fan of Ethel Merman and Irving Berlin, so I love hearing these different times colliding. But there's no way around it. Like, if you're in 1979 and you hear this, I mean, anybody can tell this is bullshit. This is gross. This is weird and stupid and awful. And it's just absolutely on beyond ripe for a, a backlash. And it's funny when we, when we did the series on hip hop evolution, this is how rap was treated initially. Just a few years later, 1981, you know, the sugar Hill gang comes out and, um, with the first rap record and and it's 
it's it's lightning in a bottle. Obviously, it's had this class, you know, massive influence on culture because it's it's a great record, even if they kind of plagiarized it um, from Grandmaster Kaz and the people who actually wrote the rhymes on that record. But it was seen as a novelty, and so very quickly you've got people um, like Rodney Dangerfield doing rap records, and they never thought it would be a serious cultural phenomenon and 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 they never had any respect for disco and they just absolutely absolutely run run it into the ground and and i didn't even disc kiss who also put out a disco song at around this time and it's just um wow you know <laughs> it's 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 it, i think that what is different from more recent episodes of record companies killing the golden goose is that there was such a limited number of media outlets that i mean you literally had three networks abc cbs nbc in the states you had a couple of weekly news magazines time and newsweek that virtually everybody had one or the other on their coffee table and then you had a, a weekly paper a daily paper in every city you know um a few cities like New York had four or five papers, but that's very much an exception by this point. So it's a media monoculture in a way that's very hard to comprehend in 2021, even though maybe even fewer companies or fewer people control the information we see now, they present it to us in this dizzying overload of options. That was not the case in the 1970s. I mean, you know, three channels on the dial, maybe a local independent or two if you lived in a big city like Dallas or Chicago, but if you were in the sticks, and Ethel Merman comes on Love Boat, dropping some of this disco. You're stuck with it. You know, <laughs> it's 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 uh, just absolutely brutal and really hard to to fathom. Um, and you got to figure, you know, four years, four or five years. It's not a bad time period for a for a subgenre of music for a very specific uh, kind of music to last. Like uh, everybody makes such a big deal about the death of disco, and it did go down hard, and and it did get played out, but it had its moment. And uh, as we talked about in the disco roots, there was there was there's there's a lot of good stuff that uh, that that came out of the early days, and a lot of stuff that germinated all through the end the fertilizer or through all the shit was uh, very useful absolutely and i think that the backlash and it's not just my opinion i mean it's very clear historically that this backlash and that suddenly disco goes from being gold to poison commercially and dance music is then commercially penalized for this for the next 15 years or 20 years in the states that gives the form, the space to grow. I think something like Chicago House or Detroit Techno would never have been ignored long enough to really emerge and blossom in the way it did and and ultimately go global had it not been for the backlash to disco. So I'm not one of these everything works out for a reason type people, but this did work out if you're a fan of EDM, uh, uh, Techno House, Acid House, all the jungle uh, drums and bass, all the various genres that have come out of this music, all directly descend from disco. There are no ifs, ands, or buts about that. The rest of this book, everything comes from the disco root. And if uh, if there's one thing that we've been taught over and over again, it's that the mainstream has nothing really uh, too interesting to teach us. Everything has to go back into the shadows. It has to go back down to its roots. It has to find a place uh, in the in in a culture, a different culture, uh, usually a minority culture, where where none of the mainstream is paying attention, where none of the cool people are, and it's got to figure itself out. And then the cool people come along later and pick it up and strangle it and suck its blood and then drop its corpse. 
on the ground. <laughs> but first they enrich it and, and share it with everybody. So it's not totally, I mean, yeah, there were, a gaz- you know, if you were buying records in the 80s, there would always be a big stack of, of used, unwanted Saturday Night Fever rec- copies at the back of every record store. I mean, I imagine the landfills, uh, the landfills that weren't filled with unwanted Atari video game cartridges after that bubble went burst uh, were filled with Saturday Night Fever. Um, this stuff was just everywhere and omnipresent. But again, I like Saturday Night Fever. I, it's not something I think that, you can listen to endlessly. Um, it's not a movie that you can watch. I think you can hate watch love hate love watch it over and over again, but it's not a cinematic classic of the form. Although Travolta's dance scenes are absolutely to me right up there with Fred Astaire. So this stuff did make a lasting contribution to the culture. It's just kind of a cheesy one. It, it's it's grandma you know jumping up after the wedding to demand that somebody throw on staying alive or jive talking so she can get down i mean this is something that's dominated our era and i I doubt future generations i don't know if kids that were born in the 21st century are going to have that same reaction it's it's just going to be another music they don't bother to investigate from the past i suspect except when it gets remixed or sampled by you know daft punk or or other more i guess that's not really recent anymore i'm showing my age again my apologies you know that's it's a historical show so we can't we can't help that yeah this stuff will be resurfaced and and your point about the great music being created on the fringes of society by outcast people. That's absolutely a theme that we've talked about all through this series, whether it's jazz in new Orleans at the turn of the 20th century, whether it's rock and roll in Memphis um, or R and B in LA in the forties, anytime you get a new genre, that's going to impact the world. It always comes from some fucking backwater. It's always Liverpool. It's always some shithole. Nobody famous and rich wants to go to. And it's always the, the 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 queer kids, the black kids, you know, the scouse kids, the the kids that nobody has time for. They're the ones that keep the torch lit. And so next time when we come back to continue our discussion of Bill Brewster and Frank Broughton's Last Night of DJ Saved My Life, we're going to talk about high energy, which is one of the styles that keeps the torch together. Do you think we should combine high high energy? and garage in the same show or do yeah i think that's probably a good idea high energy is a pretty short chapter yeah okay so we'll combine high energy and the sound that is known and i'm I'm trying to emulate the british pronunciation of garage although it was the paradise garage in america that was the club um where larry levin creates what becomes a whole new genre that the the brits i'm told called garage so ryan harkness thanks very much we'll be back next week Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Nate and Ryan will be back next week to discuss how high energy, the sound that emerged in the post-disco sucks club scenes of London, San Francisco, and New York, spawned the most successful production songwriting team of all time and provided a soundtrack for tragedy. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com.
Last Night a DJ Saved My Life, The History of the Disc Jockey, is published by Grove Press. Please support our show by ordering via the Amazon referral link on our website, letitrollpodcast.com.